Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode 139 of the Criminology Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson. Yeah, I'm Mike Morford. Mr. Morford, what's going on with you, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm just hanging in there, getting some work done. How about you? Yeah, same. Research. I mean, you know, that's kind of what we do. Research, write, study, week after week <laughs> to get ready to put out these podcasts, but it's what you got to do. Yeah, I look forward to the holiday season, one, because I like the holidays, but it also gives us a, a little bit of a breather at the end of the year. Yeah, definitely. No doubt. We've got some new Patreon support, so let's give those shout-outs. We had Allison Farn, Jana, Christina Morostica, Layla Mulkey, Suzanne Ashton, CatDoc, and Debbie Baker. So that's a lot of great new support. We really appreciate it. Yeah, that support really goes a long way, and everyone that does contribute, we appreciate it. If there's anyone else that would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash criminology to sign up. More if we've got a big topic for this episode, so we might as well jump right in. We've got a lot of information, but let's start off with a clip. I was 18 years old, driving home. uh, I saw this hitchhiker about a mile from my house. And he caught my eye. I drove past him, thought to myself, should I stop and pick him up or should I just keep on going? I wish I just keep on, kept on going, but I didn't. Turned around, picked him up. And, uh, that's when, that's when it, the nightmare became a reality. It just, uh, it just seems so bizarre to me that this obsession that I had been thinking about and wanting just uh, all the all the parts are there and they, they make it possible to make it happen that audio you just heard is from one of the most notorious serial killers in US history Jeffrey Dahmer I think it goes without saying that most listeners know who Jeffrey Dahmer was but in this episode we are going to explore the shocking details that made him infamous. So let's dive right in. Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 men between 1978 and 1991. He became known as the Milwaukee cannibal and the Milwaukee monster. Details of his horrific and gruesome crimes shocked the world after his 1991 arrest. Eventually, Dahmer's life would also come to a violent end. There are few people, if any, who have not heard of the name Jeffrey Dahmer. His name alone is a reminder to many of the ghoulishness that exists in this world. He is undoubtedly one of the most vile, some people would say the most evil killers in American history. But unlike most serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer had a reasonably normal upbringing. 
Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on May 21, 1960, to Lionel and Joyce Dahmer. He has one brother, David Dahmer, who's six years his junior. Jeffrey appeared to have a healthy, happy, and active childhood until around the age of four when he had surgery to correct a double hernia. His parents felt that somehow the surgery had changed him and Jeffrey became noticeably subdued. Between his family's frequent moves and his brother David's birth on December 18, 1966, he also became increasingly withdrawn. Shortly before David's birth, the family had moved to Doylestown, Ohio, and in 1968, they moved to Bath, near Akron. His childhood years weren't easy for Jeffrey. Joyce Dahmer often battled bouts of depression, and at times, she seemed ill-equipped to battle through her own illness, let alone help Jeffrey through his problems. Meanwhile, Lionel was busy working, and wasn't at home much, and didn't connect much with his son, or show him much attention. But although this wasn't the perfect family, it was somewhat normal in many ways. During elementary school, most young boys are playing with their friends, riding bikes, teasing each other, teasing girls. But Dahmer wasn't like most boys his age. He started wandering off on his own. He was withdrawn. And he started to have disturbing fantasies. He started killing animals and even impaled the head of one animal on a stick. Around puberty, Jeffrey Dahmer faced his sexuality, like most boys his age. He discovered he was gay, but did not tell his parents. Person coming out so young in the 60s and 70s, more far different than individuals coming out today. He kept that to himself, didn't tell his family. But what it did was it pushed Dahmer into further self-isolation. By the time he was 13, Jeffrey Dahmer was disengaged, tense, and had virtually no friends. He said that his compulsions towards necrophilia and murder began at the age of 14. Those who knew Dahmer in high school called him peculiar. His strange behavior started with high school pranks. Jeffrey had been involved in the band in his freshman year and spent one year contributing to the school newspaper. He also played intramural tennis for three years. High school principal William Holko said that Jeffrey was a C student whose attendance slid from near-perfect ninth grade to a regular by his senior year. Jeffrey Dahmer graduated from Reavers High School in Richfield, Ohio in May of 1978. His parents, who had held their crumbling relationship together for a long time, finally concluded that their marriage was over. Both Lionel and Joyce moved out of the family home to live with relatives. Dahmer, who had just turned 18, remained in the house by himself. He became even more isolated. After the last bit of normalcy and family life faded away, Lionel and Joyce Dahmer's divorce was finalized in July of 1978. And at some point after that, Joyce moved to Fresno, California. Dahmer enrolled in Ohio State University, but dropped out after a quarter term. Lionel insisted that Dahmer join the Army. So in January 1979, he enlisted as a medical specialist at Fort Sam Houston. Six months later, he was deployed to Bombholder, West Germany, where he served as a combat medic. But Jeffrey Dahmer's heavy drinking led to the Army discharging him in March 1981. German authorities later investigated possible connections between Dahmer and murders that occurred in the area during that time. Five women were mutilated and murdered between 1979 and 1981. 
but it seems that Dahmer never killed anyone while he was serving in the army, and his victims were all male. But that doesn't mean that Dahmer didn't attack while he was there. In 2010, Preston Davis came forward in an interview saying Jeffrey Dahmer had drugged and raped him in an armored personnel vehicle while they were stationed in Germany. Davis left Germany, and his replacement was 17-year-old Billy Joe Capshaw. Capshaw said Dahmer attacked him the very first night he arrived at the base in a room that the two shared. Capshaw managed to escape by jumping from the third floor window. Capshaw estimated that Dahmer raped him eight to ten times. He recalled that Jeffrey had tied him to the bunk with motor pool rope, stripped him of his clothing, and either beat him before he raped him or beat him after. He reported the attack to army officials and was taken to the dispensary to be tested with a rape kit to determine if he was being truthful. But apparently the physicians, they didn't do anything. And Capshaw was sent back to his room. He found out a decade later that the rape kit and results had been discarded. Capshaw remained in Germany for about 17 months. And throughout that time, he was raped and tortured by Jeffrey Dahmer. And more, you know, this type of thing is something that comes up in the research of a lot of the cases that we do. Most often, I see it where the victim is a woman. She goes to the authorities and either they don't believe her, they dismiss her. You know, this time it's a man. We're in the army. But the same thing happens, right? He does what he's supposed to do. He reports it to the correct people, and it's as though it gets completely dismissed. They don't look into it. They don't do anything about it. Nothing. And, and I think for me, it really ticks me off every time I see this. Now, granted, you normally these cases are older that we're talking about going back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But it really gets to me that you have victims who are willing and muster up the courage to tell the proper people what is happening to them. And they essentially get nothing. They get no support whatsoever. Yeah, you would think that something like the military is going to protect their soldiers and investigate this kind of claim and to see that not happen, whether it was a male or a female, in this case a male, is is pretty troubling. And and also I don't know if it had something to do with this is the time of don't ask, don't tell the the stance they had in the military for that. Uh, I don't know if they sort of didn't want to get involved because it ventured on down that territory and they just dismissed it altogether. But either way it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I'm not sure if it had anything to do with that or not, but we already said it. Dahmer was discharged from the army for drinking too much. (laughs) So we know that they have rules. I mean, it's kind of what they base the whole thing on, right? Rules and regulations and this and that. But when it comes to something like this, it's like, "Mm, we're closing our eyes to it. We don't want to get involved. I, I just, I don't understand it. And it also leads you to wonder, had they taken this more serious and investigated and and punished him, maybe 
that would have spared a lot of people their lives in the future. Well, I think we see that in a number of cases. Things go unreported. People aren't charged. They're not convicted. And then, you know, therefore, they don't have something that they should have following them around. So, you know, when authorities are looking into who might be committing certain crimes, they might not hit the radar because they don't have in their file what they should have. I guess is what I'm trying to say. After Jeffrey Dahmer returned from Germany to the States, he settled back in Bath, Ohio, and he lived with Lionel. Jeffrey did move to Miami, Florida for a few months, but he quickly returned to Bath. At this time, Dahmer was drinking heavily. During the 1980s, he wandered from job to job, holding down such positions as a phlebotomist at the Milwaukee Blood Plasma Center and as a mixer at the Milwaukee Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. He was arrested for being drunk and disorderly in Bath in late 1981. During that arrest, it took four police officers to hold him down. The arrest forced Lionel Dahmer to send his son to live with his grandmother, Catherine Dahmer, in West Allis, Wisconsin. When Jeffrey first moved there, he abided by his grandmother's rules, helped her keep her house clean, ran errands, and accompanied her to church. But soon, they began to clash, and more trouble was on the horizon. The summer after Jeffrey moved in with his grandmother, he was arrested for indecent exposure. In 1986, Dahmer was arrested once again after two boys accused him of masturbating in front of them. He received one year of probation. And again, more if this is kind of piggybacking on what we just talked about, right? You know, maybe, just maybe, if any of these warning signs of trouble within Jeffrey Dahmer had been recognized, if they had been dealt with, it's possible that the carnage he would later cause could have been avoided. But it definitely couldn't have stopped them all because what no one knew was that Dahmer had already committed his first murder by the time of these arrests. Jeffrey Dahmer's first killing occurred in June 1978 when he picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks and drove him to his parents' house in Bath. There, he got Stephen drunk, and when Stephen tried to leave, Dahmer struck him in the head with a barbell and then strangled him. He dismembered the corpse, packed the body parts in plastic bags, and buried them behind the home. Later on, he exhumed the remains, crushed the bones with a sledgehammer, and scattered them across a wooded ravine behind the house. Authorities do not believe he committed any other murders in Ohio. On November 21st, 1987, Jeffrey Dahmer met 24-year-old Stephen Tiami at a Milwaukee bar. He persuaded the young man to get a room at the Ambassador Hotel after Stephen refused to go to Dahmer's residence. Jeffrey Dahmer later said that he had no intention of killing him. He had planned simply to drug and rape him as the man lay unconscious. Dahmer claimed that he awoke the next morning to find Stephen lying beneath him on the bed with his chest crushed in and black and blue with bruises. Blood was also trickling from Stephen's mouth, and Dahmer's fist and one forearm were extensively bruised. Jeffrey Dahmer said he had no recollection of the murder. In a panic, he purchased a large suitcase and moved Stephen's body to his grandmother's basement. Then he dismembered the corpse and masturbated on it. On January 16, 1988, 
Dahmer lured 14-year-old Jamie Doxtater to his grandmother's house. He drugged Jamie and then strangled him. Dahmer removed the flesh from the boy's bones with acid and pulverized the remains. He then scattered the remains in the same location as Stephen Tuami's. Dahmer's next victim was 23-year-old Richard Guerrero, who he met outside of a gay bar. He lured Richard to his grandmother's home with the promise of money for sex. Once at the house, Dahmer laced Richard's drink with sleeping pills and strangled him with a leather strap. Afterward, he performed oral sex on the corpse before dismembering it and pulverizing the remains. In September 1988, Jeffrey Dahmer was charged with drugging and molesting a 13-year-old boy who he lured to his grandmother's house with the promise of $50 for some nude photographs. He served the boy coffee laced with lorazepam, a powerful anti-anxiety drug that can knock someone out with a high enough dose as he awaited sentencing for his sexual assault case. Dahmer committed another murder at his grandmother's home on March 25, 1989. He lured 26-year-old Anthony Lee Sears to the house and then drugged, strangled, sodomized, and photographed Anthony. After Dahmer killed Anthony, he dismembered his corpse. He cut off his head and genitals to keep as trophies. Dahmer's trial on the sexual assault took place in May 1989. He pleaded guilty and claimed that the boy had appeared much older. In court, he showed regret for his crime and argued eloquently in his defense. Dahmer told the judge he had seen the error of his ways and that his arrest was a turning point in his life. His defense attorney also expressed to the judge that what Dahmer needed was treatment, not incarceration, and the judge agreed. Dahmer received a one-year sentence on day release, which allowed him to work during the day and return to prison at night. He also received five years probation. So, again, something else that really ticks me off. I mean, we are talking about drugging and sexually molesting a 13-year-old boy, and you're going to get what is essentially kind of like house arrest? And still be allowed out during the day to go work? I don't get it, man. Yeah, I wouldn't want this guy walking around in my neighborhood knowing what he did to that boy. Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing. It's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective. Because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. On May 14th, 1990, Dahmer moved out of his grandmother's home and into a cheap one-bedroom apartment at 925 North 25th Street. It's here, in apartment 213, at the Oxford apartment complex where Jeffrey Dahmer would commit 13 more murders before he was ultimately taken down. And just six days after he moved in, Dahmer lured a 33-year-old sex worker named Raymond Lamont Smith, also known as Ricky Beeks, to his new apartment with the promise of $50 for sex. Dahmer strangled Raymond and then performed oral sex on the corpse. He dismembered the body and removed the head. And for whatever morbid reason, Dahmer painted this man's skull gray and placed it in his refrigerator. So now you have Jeffrey Dahmer. He's in this apartment by himself. He has a place all to himself, no family members to interfere with him fulfilling his horrific fantasies. And more of one thing I think that is safe to say, the things that he would do inside this apartment. They're nothing short of appalling. 27-year-old Eddie Smith was last seen on June 14, 1990 with Jeffrey Dahmer. Friends of Smith saw the two men together at various Milwaukee clubs. Dahmer lured Eddie to his apartment where he drugged, strangled, and dismembered the 27-year-old. He placed the remains in acid to dissolve them. Smith's remains were never found, and police believe that they were totally destroyed. 22-year-old Ernest Miller had struggled in life, but he'd just gotten his life together not long before he became another of Dahmer's victims. On Labor Day 1990, Ernest, who lived in Chicago, traveled to Milwaukee for a family get-together, which he attended. Sometime after that get-together, Ernest met Dahmer on the street in a small business district in Milwaukee. Dahmer offered him $50 to go back to his apartment with him, and Ernest agreed. Once at the apartment, Ernest allowed Dahmer to listen to his stomach and his heart. Dahmer attempted to perform oral sex on him, but Ernest told him that that would cost extra. So Dahmer slipped Ernest a couple of sleeping pills and a drink and then slit his throat. And this was something Dahmer had done before. Now, typically, 
he used more than two tablets when he slipped them into one of his victim's drinks, but this time he only had two pills. So this smaller dose did not entirely knock Ernest out. And that's why Dahmer cut his throat. He was afraid that Ernest was going to fight back. The man bled to death within minutes. Dahmer then posed his nude body in numerous provocative positions, and he took a bunch of photographs. After that, he dismembered the body in the bathtub. But while he was dismembering the body, he spoke to the corpse and apparently repeatedly kissed the head. Dahmer wrapped the biceps, the heart, and parts of Ernest Miller's legs in plastic bags and placed them in his refrigerator for later consumption. Dahmer removed the flesh with acid, bleached the skeleton, and kept it in his wardrobe. So, Morph, let's talk about later consumption, right? We've already said Dahmer was given the nickname the Milwaukee Cannibal. People know why. He ate parts of many of his victims. I mean, this was something that he later admitted to in police interviews. It's part of what caused such a media frenzy, right? Bad enough, the murders and, you know, some of the other things that he did that we'll talk about, but to find out that he's a, he was a cannibal, you know, when you splash that across the front page of the newspaper, you're going to get people's attention. Yeah. Cannibalism is such a taboo subject, even in cases where people have resorted to cannibalism to survive uh, and stay alive. It gets it gets met with mixed feelings or um, some kind of disgust. So when he did this to people that he murdered, it seems like it was just especially over the top, top and overly shocking. The families of Eddie Smith and Ernest Miller said they received strange phone calls after they reported their loved ones missing. Carolyn Smith, Eddie Smith's sister, said she received a call in April 1991 from a male who sounded like he was a Caucasian. He said, don't bother looking for your brother. He's dead. Corrine Miller, the grandmother of Ernest Miller, said she received a phone call from someone moaning and groaning and speaking in a faint voice, saying, help, help. Help. The call came within two weeks after the family reported Miller missing. After Dahmer's eventual arrest, he never admitted whether he made these phone calls or not. 23-year-old David Thomas was last seen on September 23, 1990 in Milwaukee. He last spoke with his family in August. They reported him missing on September 24th. David did not have a permanent address, but he had lived off and on with a girlfriend for several years. Jeffrey Dahmer met David at the Grand Avenue Mall and lured him back to his apartment, where he laced David's drink with sleeping pills. He murdered David and then disposed of his remains in the same manner as he had done with Ernest Miller. Dahmer took several photographs of David in his drugged state and later said that he was not attracted to him, but was afraid to allow him to wake up for fear that David would be angry for drugging him. So Dahmer strangled and dismembered him, but he didn't keep any of the body parts. David's remains were never found. He left behind a three-year-old daughter. Several months later, 
Jeffrey Dahmer met 17-year-old Curtis Strotter and lured him to his apartment with the promise of money for nude photos, but with the added incentive of sex. Dahmer drugged Curtis, then strangled him with a leather strap. After he dismembered his victim, Dahmer crushed the bones, but retained the skull. He disposed of the bones in the garbage. Dahmer took pictures of the dismemberment process. Dahmer had a nearly two-month break between murders. The next one occurred on April 7th, 1991. And this is when Dahmer took his killings to an entirely different level. He lured his victim, 19-year-old Errol Lindsay, with the usual offer of money to pose for nude photographs. Once Errol was inside apartment 213, Jeffrey Dahmer drugged him, but instead of strangling him right away, he did something completely different. Dahmer drilled a hole in Errol's skull and poured muriatic acid inside it. He did this with the hopes of putting Errol in a state that would make him permanently submissive and unresponsive, almost zombie-like. He wanted to keep Errol as a sex slave. But incredibly, Lindsay woke up complaining of a headache and he asked Dahmer for the time. And this shocked Jeffrey Dahmer. And I think he was frightened and he immediately strangled the man and dismembered his body. But Dahmer kept his head. He attempted to keep some of his skin, but said that he later had to dispose of it because it became too brittle. 31-year-old Anthony Hughes was deaf and mute, and he had just started a job in a Madison condom plant. He was described as a party person who loved to dance. He had known Jeffrey Dahmer since October 1989, when they met at a party in Milwaukee. On the night of May 24, 1991, Tony was last seen at Club 219, a Milwaukee gay bar. Friends of Tony's who were also there that night said he left the bar with Jeffrey Dahmer, who had approached Tony at the club with a written request, asking him to pose nude. Tony agreed, and the two left. Once inside Dahmer's apartment, Tony was drugged and strangled. After murdering him, Dahmer left the corpse lying around his apartment for over two days before he dismembered it. He dissolved the body in acid, but kept the skull. The next murder that Jeffrey Dahmer committed enraged the entire community after all of the details became public because it turned out that it was entirely preventable. Just after midnight on May 27th, 1991, 18-year-old Sandra Smith and her 17-year-old cousin, Nicole Childress, witnessed 14-year-old Conorak Synthesome phone running naked, bleeding, and disoriented into the street with Jeffrey Dahmer in hot pursuit. Sandra recognized Dahmer as a resident of the neighborhood. The two women saw Dahmer attempting to lure Conorak back into his apartment. Sandra intervened and told Dahmer to leave the boy alone and that Nicole had gone to call the police. Dahmer told Sandra there was no need for the police and that the young boy was his friend, Jim. Okay, hi, um, this, um, I'm on 25th State, and this is young man, he is butt naked, he has been beaten up, he is very bruised up, he can't stand, he's 34 now, he has, he is butt naked, he has no clothes on, he is really hurt, and I, you know, I ain't got no quarter on him, I just think him, he needs some help. Where is he at? On 25th State, the corner of 25th State. 
Three Milwaukee police officers arrived in response to the call. They told Sandra and Nicole not to interfere. Dahmer had lied to the officers and said the boy he was chasing was 19 years old, drunk, and was his lover. Dahmer said he could prove it because he had taken nude pictures of the boy. The three officers walked to Dahmer's apartment, where he presented them with a photograph of Conorak, handcuffed to the bed only in his underwear. The officers dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel, and they left Conorak with Dahmer, despite the protest of witnesses Sandra Smith and Nicole Childrens. Sadly, as soon as the officers left, Dahmer strangled and dismembered this boy and stored his remains in acid before Conorak had attempted to escape Dahmer's clutches. Dahmer had drugged him and drilled a hole in his head. He then poured muriatic acid inside the hole, basically the same procedure he had performed on Errol Lindsay. And this is why the boy appeared dazed and bleeding as he ran from Dahmer out into the street. The three officers who left Conorak with Dahmer denied any wrongdoing and stated they were not racist or homophobic, as many in the community accused them of being once all these details came out. The officers were suspended in late July 1991 after Dahmer's arrest for failing to write a formal report on the encounter or to run Dahmer's name through the police computer, which would have revealed the prior child molestation conviction. And, and more, this is one of the, the things in this case that, you know, I, I have failed to understand for years. The police got to look at this 14-year-old kid. Could they not tell that he had a hole drilled into his head? I, I just... I don't understand what type of investigation they did other than looking at a picture of him handcuffed to the bed and saying, oh, yep, you guys must be lovers. This is a lover's quarrel. We're out. Yeah, it, it's really disturbing that they wouldn't take the time to look at his injuries a little bit closer. As soon as they would have seen a hole in his head, I, I think that would have put the brakes on things and they would have spent a little bit more time there, but it just seems like they just brushed it off and, and didn't put a lot of time into looking closer at the situation. But this is what outraged a lot of people is that, you know, they looked at it as the police missed an opportunity to save lives. Not only could they have saved Conorak's life, but they could have prevented others from later losing their lives. You can hear some of that outrage in this portion of a press conference held by the Milwaukee chief of police at the time Dahmer was arrested. There will be three officers that will be placed on suspension from duty pending the outcome of the investigation. I have not come to any conclusion without the benefit of that investigation. Their relief from duty simply is to provide us an opportunity to investigate this matter in an objective and impartial manner. Have they told you their version of what happened? Let me just indicate for all of you that I will not answer any other questions relative to that inquiry simply because it is ongoing. Are they suspended with or without pay? They will be suspended with pay as provided by the statutes of the state of Wisconsin. Chief, the witness made a very strong remark 
that had she not been black, those officers would listen to her instead of taking the other's story. Similarly, we've had people in the homosexual community say that this was a case in which um, because of the, the connotations and the perceptions of the officers, they simply wrote it off. Well, are you concerned about, A, the sensitivity of police officers to the racial issue here and to the, to the problems with dealing with homosexual aspects of behavior and conduct? Well, let me just say that obviously those comments may be speculative at best. However, I am deeply concerned about any perception that any citizen or the community may have regarding the sensitivity of the Milwaukee Police Department. And it is a matter that we are seriously looking into. Well, Chief, how do you feel about the fact that seemingly Dahmer slipped through your fingers back in May and that uh, his ensuing victims would be alive today, possibly if the, those officers had investigated? I wish I could put that feeling into words for you today. Could, could you try? No, I cannot. Chief, we have information that on at least um, two other occasions in the past three years, Milwaukee police have had contact with Dahmer. And in one of those cases was actually in his apartment to take a police report. How could it be that they didn't notice anything wrong, given what you said yesterday, that it would be impossible for somebody to enter that apartment and not realize that there was a problem? I don't know. Do you think that your officers were lax in searching or not following up on indications? They're trained people. People are trained to notice problems, or supposed to. I cannot answer that. Can you give a more general question? Further? What role can a police department play in preventing murders, particularly this kind of murder? If I knew that answer, if I knew that answer, I probably would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Homicides, as you all realize, are often the most unpreventable, unpredictable crime that we have to deal with. Obviously, there have been many research efforts, the domestic violence research efforts, and other efforts in which predictable behavior can be defined and somehow uh, uh, predicted. Uh, I have no ready answers for your question. Chief, Chief, going back, the officers, officers who were, were in the apartment, in apartment at that previously? time indicated that there was a funny smell in there. Should that have tipped them off to something else? Do you feel that maybe the officers and maybe even more than one occasion have not been following through here? Uh, I can't answer that. That's, it's overly speculative. We could, we could speculate on what if for the rest of the afternoon it would serve no good purpose. It turns out that the victim in the 1988 sexual assault case that Dahmer was guilty of was Conorak's brother. Dahmer wasn't aware of this. Conorak's family said they never saw Dahmer's face, so they wouldn't have recognized him. The three police officers were eventually fired from the Milwaukee Police Department, but in 1994, after winning an appeal, the department hired them back. If the officers had arrested Dahmer, they would have prevented four more murders and one attempted murder. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. 20-year-old Matt Turner waited tables at Chicago-style pizza and eatery at 120 South Michigan Avenue in Chicago. He had a sparkling personality, and he loved to sing. 
Customers at the restaurant loved him and often praised him to the owner. On June 30th, 1991, Matt was lured to Dahmer's apartment, drugged, strangled, and dismembered. His body parts were left lying around Jeffrey's apartment. Nearly a week later, on July 5th, Jeremiah Weinberger, who was 23 years old, became Dahmer's next victim. Jeremiah worked as a customer service representative at Images of the World, the video sales department of the Bijou, an adult theater in Chicago. Jeremy met Dahmer at a gay bar called Carol's Speakeasy on Wells Street. The assistant manager, Tim Gideon, who was also Jeremiah's former roommate, later confirmed the account. He had chatted with both of the men and said there was nothing unusual about the encounter. Dahmer offered Jeremy money to pose nude and watch some videos. According to a 1991 Chicago Tribune article, Dahmer later told police that Jeremy stayed at his apartment for two days. The first day they had sex, but the next day Jeremy wanted to go home. Dahmer slipped sleeping pills into his drink, and when he was unconscious, Dahmer took photographs of Jeremy. Then he drilled a hole into his head, but this time, instead of pouring muriatic acid inside, Dahmer twice injected boiling water into Jeremy's head, which sent him into a coma. Dahmer took more photographs during the dismemberment process and kept Jeremy's head in the freezer and his body in a 57-gallon drum. Of all Jeffrey Dahmer's victims, Oliver Lacey is probably the one who didn't fit Dahmer's typical victim profile. According to Oliver's family, he was heterosexual and never attended gay bars. Oliver was a track star in high school and ran the 100-meter dash in under 11 seconds several times during his senior year. He placed fourth in the 100-meter dash in the Illinois State High School Finals in 1987. Oliver, who was 23 years old, moved to Milwaukee from Chicago to be with his fiancée, Rose Cologne, who was also 23 and their two-year-old child, Emmanuel. Rose and the child lived with Oliver's aunt and mother, Catherine Cologne, in her duplex on Milwaukee's west side when Oliver moved in. Oliver was a handsome young man whose family believed he should have been a model. Later, they were confused about how a cold-blooded killer was able to lure Oliver away because he wasn't the type so easily influenced by another person. Oliver was last seen on July 15, 1991. At the Grand Avenue Mall in downtown Milwaukee, he had gone to the mall with a friend. Around 6 p.m., Dahmer approached him and invited him to his apartment to do some modeling. Once there, the men removed their clothes and gave each other body rubs. Dahmer then gave Oliver a drink laced with sleeping pills. When Oliver passed out, Dahmer strangled him and then had anal sex with his corpse. He dismembered the body, placed the head in the bottom of the refrigerator in a box, and kept Oliver's heart in the freezer to eat later on. 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoff was originally from Greenville, Illinois, a small town roughly 50 miles east of St. Louis. He had moved to Milwaukee in 1989. On July 19, 1991, Dahmer offered him money to pose nude, then drugged and strangled him. He dismembered the body, but kept the head and torso in his apartment. The last victim of Jeffrey Dahmer was able to get away and was the person who helped take down 
the serial killer. On July 22, 1991, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards was lured to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and given a laced cocktail to drink. Dahmer tried making sexual advances towards Tracy. As Tracy started to struggle, Dahmer slipped handcuffs onto his right arm. But as Dahmer went for a knife, Tracy ran for the door. Dahmer tried to pull him back inside, but Tracy managed to punch Dahmer hard on the side of his head, knocking him to the floor. At 11 p.m., Tracy escaped and ran outside into the street, where he flagged down a police car at the corner of North 25th Street. Two Milwaukee police officers got out of the vehicle, and Tracy told them that a, quote, weird dude had placed the handcuffs on him and asked him if they could remove them. But the officer's handcuff keys didn't fit, so Tracy agreed to accompany them to apartment 213 so that the officers could get to the bottom of what was going on. Once the officers got there, Dahmer admitted to them that he had put the handcuffs on Tracy Edwards, but offered no reason for doing it. Then Tracy told the cops that Dahmer had also threatened him with a large knife in the bedroom. Dahmer remained silent, but told the officers that the key to the handcuffs was in the bedside dresser. As one of the officers entered the bedroom, Dahmer attempted to pass by him to retrieve the key himself, but the officer told Dahmer to back off. One of the officers noticed Polaroid photographs of dismembered bodies lying around, and immediately, the officers subdued Jeffrey Dahmer. They called for backup because they knew that the apartment they were standing in was going to require some help to search. Searches of Apartment 213 revealed one head in a box on the bottom shelf in the refrigerator, two heads in garbage bags in the freezer, and a filing cabinet containing three skulls. They found some jars that contained genitalia and an extensive gallery of ghastly Polaroid pictures of Dahmer's victims in different stages of undress and dismemberment. The apartment had a strong and unpleasant odor. Investigators pulled boxes and barrels of evidence and remains from the apartment wearing hazmat-type suits to do it. Medical examiner Jeffrey Jensen was called in to assist and found prescriptions for lorazepam and chloroform in the apartment, which Dahmer used to knock out his victims. Police removed bottles of chloroform, formaldehyde, and ethyl alcohol along with electric tools. Authorities found hands and bones in computer boxes and two torsos in a 57-gallon plastic drum. According to Jensen's report, there was no food in the apartment, only condiments, but pots and pans were dirty and had congealed material on them. News of Dahmer's arrest and the gruesome details of what investigators found in his apartment gave new meaning to the phrase House of Horrors. The truth about what Dahmer had done came out and Dahmer was called by many the Milwaukee cannibal. Jeffrey Dahmer eventually confessed to killing 17 men in Ohio and Wisconsin, but was only tried for 15 murders. His trial began in January 1992, and strict security precautions were taken, mostly because of racial tensions stemming from the fact that most of Dahmer's victims were black. An eight-foot barrier, A bulletproof glass separated Dahmer from the public. Despite his confession to the killings, Dahmer initially pleaded not guilty. 
He ultimately changed his plea to guilty by reason of insanity. His defense lawyer stated that his gruesome crimes proved he was insane, because a sane person was not capable of such atrocities. The prosecution argued that Dahmer was fully aware of his acts and chose to commit them anyway. Dr. George Palermo, a forensic psychiatrist, testified that Dahmer was not insane, but was instead a, quote, organized, non-social lust murderer who was methodical, calculating, and entirely in control of his actions. The jury deliberated for 10 hours on February 15, 1992, before finding Jeffrey Dahmer guilty on all counts. He was ultimately sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in prison, with a 16th term added in May 1992. He was incarcerated at a Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin. At trial, family members of Dahmer's victims came forward to confront him and give impact statements. Their statements ran the gamut from almost forgiving to downright angry. My name is Shirley Hughes, and I'm Tony Anthony Hughes' mother. I would like to say to Jeffrey Dahmer that he don't know the pain, the hurt, the loss, and the mental state that he had put our family in. Two fingers and one thumb means I love you in sign language. My son was deaf. My name is Dorothy Strader. I'm Curtis Strader's mother. Just a few things that I would like to say. You took my 17-year-old son away from me. I'll never get a chance to tell him that I loved him. I'd have a chance to tell him that I love him the last time I saw him, which will be a year tomorrow. You took my mother's oldest grandchild from her. And for that, I can never forgive you. My name is Inez Thomas, and I'm the mother of David Thomas. You know, I don't understand how a person could really harm a person and to say that, well, I did this because he wasn't my type. Well, if everybody go around doing something to somebody because it's, they're, they're tight, this would be a sad world today. And I just feel that this man should never be able to walk the face of the earth or to be able to harm anyone else again. Good morning, Honor. My name is Donald Bradoff. I'm the, for the Bradoff family, my mother gave five beautiful kids. We lost. He destroyed the baby of the family, and I hope you go to hell. I love this world. You guys did a wonderful job. Bottom of my heart, thank to God, I've got a lot of strength. Thank you all. God bless America. My name is Rita Isbell, and I'm the oldest sister of Errol Lindsay. Jeff, whatever your name is, Satan. I'm mad. This is how you act when you are out of control. I don't want to ever see my mother have to go through this again. Never, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I hate you, motherfucker. I hate you. is out of control. Don't fuck with me, Jeffrey. I'll kill you. After his arrest, Hollywood, Florida authorities looked into Dahmer as a possible suspect in the 1981 murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh, whose father, John Walsh, later became a victim's rights advocate and host of America's Most Wanted. It was John who had urged police to investigate Dahmer. Dahmer had lived about 20 miles away in the Miami area at the time of Adam's murder, 
but denied killing the little boy. In 2008, Florida investigators announced serial killer Otis Tool as Adam's killer and said that Tool confessed in 1983 to killing Adam Walsh and 100 other people. But Tool gave contradictory statements regarding Adam's murder, and he usually committed crimes with his partner, Henry Lucas. Officially, the Florida authorities had no evidence, including DNA, to prove Tool had killed Adam. And I think more, if any time you talk about Otis Tool, Henry Lee Lucas, and their confessions, you know, you, you really have to take a hard look at them because they've confessed, especially Lucas, they've confessed to a lot of different things. Many of those things have been proven to not be possible. So, you know, those are two in particular that I look at and say, I don't know if I trust anything that, that ever came out of their mouths. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many episodes we've done where their names have come up. It's, it's that much that they admit to. And especially Lucas, right? Because he has confessed to what hundreds and hundreds of different murders. But I think for him, it, you know, some of that was a game and, in an effort to get out of prison and go on some trips. And I mean, it is what it is. The Miami Herald investigated Adam Walsh's murder to see if it was at all possible that Jeffrey Dahmer could have killed him. And they reported in 2010 that there were, quote, two additional witnesses who said they saw Jeffrey Dahmer at the mall with Adam that day. There was another who placed Dahmer at the scene of an eerily similar abduction attempt, 10-year-old Terry Keaton, just two weeks earlier. And there were people who said that Jeffrey Dahmer had access to a van fitting a possible description of the getaway vehicle in that case. These witnesses recognized Dahmer as soon as they saw his face on the news. His macabre killings made international and national headlines. Despite these witness accounts, Hollywood authorities remained confident that Otis Toole was Adam's killer and they closed the case. Otis Toole died in prison in 1996. So Dahmer was sent off to prison. And he adjusted to prison life reasonably well. Initially, he was kept from the general population for fear that inmates would harm him. He later, though, convinced prison authorities to allow him to integrate more fully with the other inmates. Dahmer claimed that he found religion through books and pictures sent to him by his father, Lionel, and the Columbia Correctional Institution permitted him to be baptized by a local pastor. On November 28, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer and inmates Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver were assigned to clean prison bathrooms. They were unshackled and left unattended. After they had been left on their own to complete their jobs, the prison guards returned and discovered that Scarver had brutally beaten both men with a metal bar from the prison weight room. Jeffrey Dahmer was pronounced dead about an hour after the incident took place. In a 2015 interview with the New York Post, Scarver said that he went to retrieve a mop when he felt someone poking his back. He turned around and he saw Anderson and Dahmer laughing under their breath. He couldn't determine which of the men had poked him, but Scarver followed Dahmer to the locker room after the three men split up. He had kept a newspaper clipping detailing Dahmer's killings and said that he had been disgusted by them. He asked Jeffrey if he had done these atrocious things described in the story. 
Cornered, Dahmer tried to escape, but Scarver grabbed the metal bar and struck him with it, crushing Dahmer's skull. Scarver then found Jesse Anderson and did the same thing to him. Scarver pleaded insanity, but later changed it to no contest in exchange for a transfer to federal prison. He was sentenced to two life terms in addition to the one he was already serving. He's currently incarcerated at Centennial Correctional Facility in Cannon City, Colorado. So, Morph, here's one thing that I think about. You're serving a life sentence already. I don't know if this guy had any eligibility for parole or not, but let's say he didn't. He got two more life sentences. Okay. He got sent to federal prison, but what did he really get? I mean, he was probably already going to serve his the rest of his life in prison anyway. I don't know. I just kind of think about that as like, what's the deterrent for some of these individuals with a life sentence not to do something bad? To me, there, there really isn't one unless they have some eligibility for parole. Yeah, if you're already going to die in prison, what's the difference? And a lot of these guys, it's like a, a badge of honor to take out someone so notorious like a Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, I mean, what? how can you get more prison cred than that, right? Taking out the infamous Jeffrey Dahmer. In August 2012, Dahmer's childhood home in Bath, Ohio was on the market, but no one bought it. In the spring of 2016, the owner, Chris Butler, rented the home for $8,000 for the week of the Republican National Convention. In 2017, the movie My Friend Dahmer was partially filmed in the home. As of the time of this airing, the house is not for sale or rent. To feed the public's desire to know more about Dahmer, there have been a number of books and movies made about him, including The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, written by... Brian Masters, which was published in 1993, and My Friend Dahmer, which depicts Dahmer's childhood before he became the notorious Milwaukee cannibal. It seems like over a quarter century since Jeffrey Dahmer's shocking crimes were revealed to the world, people still continue to be intrigued by the fact that you know this one meek, mild-mannered man could be such a monster. And it seems as if Jeffrey Dahmer himself couldn't really understand why he did the things he did as he explains in this clip of an interview he did in 1993 with Inside Edition. I had uh, these obsessive uh, desires and, and uh, thoughts wanting to control them to, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, possess them permanently. And that's why you killed them. Right, right. Not because I was angry with them, not because I hated them, but because I wanted to keep them with me. So, Morph, as we wrap up this case on Jeffrey Dahmer, as with all serial killers, there is something that is driving them. There's a compulsion. There's something, you know, deep inside that says, they need to do this and it gives them something. I think for different people, it gives them something different, sexual gratification, but it satisfies some type of need or urge. But I do think it's somewhat different for different serial killers. I think Dahmer's is different from almost anybody that I've really 
come across, you know, this, and he talked about it, this desire to try to keep someone with him. You know, I, I don't know if there's been anybody else, at least that we've profiled that has had that same type of urge or desire. Yeah. I go back to his childhood. Again, he had a, a pretty normal upbringing. Obviously his parents' marriage failed, but there was no evidence that they abused him or did anything shocking. He didn't experience anything tragic when he was young. So all these things that we sometimes see in other cases of of these kind of killers, there's something there, something to say, aha, maybe that had something to do with it. But we don't really see that here. And it makes you wonder where did this desire come from? What caused it? It seems like he knew that he had it, but I don't think he could ever explain where it came from or, or why it was there. It was just there. And, you know, maybe other people have things like that and they never act out on them, but obviously he did in very horrific ways. This, this guy was a monster and and it's the reason why he's such an infamous serial killer. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at truecrimediva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. You can leave a review if you want, but keep telling your friends. You have friends that are into true crime If they're not currently listening to criminology, set them up, tell them about it, put it on their phone, get them into it. And if you're the type of person that's on social media, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at criminology pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for criminology podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group, criminology podcast discussion and fans. So that is it for another episode of criminology, but Morph and I will be back with all of you next Saturday night with a brand new episode. So for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.